Hey, once again, it is a privilege to welcome you to The Court Interpreters, brought to you by Integra Law. I'm Brian Hyde, along with Gary Welch. And every other week, Gary and I get together. We joked about this before we went on the air about um, our, our Supreme Court uh, law legal experts. Uh, we're, we're, we're not, but we are interested in this kind of stuff. We talk about cases, court cases, that have had a historical impact on America. And Gary, I have to say you have picked a couple of doozies for this episode. And I thought this is very appropriate. Um, as we are transitioning in our presidency and, and we're going to start to see those changes, these major shifts, when it shifts from one party to another and, and they, that party has controls, we see a lot of shifts that happen that do affect our economy. And the cases that we're going to talk about today are part of that, of how Congress can impact our economy. And, and that's basically, you know, the, the Commerce Clause, Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution, where it grants Congress some powers on that, and how the Supreme Courts have interpreted what the Supreme, or what the Congress can do as far as legislating our economy. And I think it's going to surprise a couple of people about, you know, how long this has been and how, how much it has an impact on us. And I think a lot of people don't realize just that there is a lot out there that has already been decided and was decided a long time ago, um, you know, regarding how this is going to work. Now, I want to lay down kind of a baseline of, of my uh, knowledge or my foundation of knowledge as far as uh, how federalism is supposed to work. My understanding is the states were to retain most every um, power and authority, and the people as well. You know, this is per the Ninth and Tenth Amendments of the Bill of Rights. And the federal government only was considered to have supreme authority in those areas where the concerns of all the, the states of the Union coincided. Now, interstate commerce obviously would be one of those things. Foreign policy would be another thing. So I, I've heard it said, and I think it may have been Jefferson who, who said this, that uh, the, the goal of the Constitution was that the states would be uh, separate as far as uh, internal affairs, but one in terms of the uh, outward affairs of the nation. And I just I want to run that by you and, and just say, does that, does that sound consistent with your understanding of the original intent? Actually, I'm going to give you a little bit different interpretation because okay. there is this philosophy. You express a philosophy that is held by many people in this country and those who would consider themselves constitutionalists, that they feel like this is what the Constitution is and this is what it says. And I'm not saying they're wrong. In fact, I would say that my own personal feelings is I agree with your interpretation of that. But that is not necessarily the history. The ah. history says something <laughs> a little different. And so we got to talk about that. In fact, this, this case right here is a very good example of that. So set this up, right? We have people, they're coming together, they're making this constitution. We have the Federalist Papers. And, and this is one of the sources that we go to to look at to say, okay, this is what our founding fathers intended when they were writing the constitution. But there was a lot that happened, and there was the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, and this is where we get into it, in that as the country was first being developed, as we were first getting started, our, it was not decided what kind of country we were going to be. The Constitution did not absolutely declare, hey, yeah, this is what our country looks like, here are the rules, 
here's how everything's going to work. That was still something that was in progress at the time. And these two factions, you know, the Jefferson faction and the Alexander Hamilton faction were the two big, those were the two leaders of these two concepts, were very much dynamically opposed to what was going to happen. And the Hamilton model was a more strong central government that did have control over the states, but gave them a lot of anonymity, that they could work on their own. They would have a lot of decisions they could make on their own. And the Jefferson approach was, no, these things are actually sovereign countries. We will treat them like if they were their actual countries. And the central government is only going to do those things as far as international and interstate issues. And that's it. And then just protect the rights overall. And then so these clauses like what does the Constitution say and doesn't say is actually up to interpretation. And that's what the Supreme Court has been doing ever since the beginning. And this is one of them. This is it, this is one of these issues where that that discussion came up really big as to what can the central government goes. And, and the first case we're going to talk about is McCulloch versus Maryland. This is an 1819 case. You're, you're talking about people who formed the Constitution are still alive at this time. And okay. this case was decided at that time. So more than 200 years ago, though, this, this case came before the Supreme Court. What's, what's the background? What, uh, what uh, happened that, uh, that set this case in motion? So this is one of the biggest arguments among even today that, that we still discuss about, and that is the Federal Reserve Bank and the Federal Reserve. How does, how does that play into our government? And it, for those of you who may not realize, this is not a new thing. This is not a uh, Franklin Roosevelt thing. This is actually something that has been in the very beginning of our government. And again, it goes back to Alexander Hamilton. He always wanted a United States bank. He felt like we should have one. And he got his way, actually. During um, during Washington's um, administration, Hamilton was the Secretary of Treasury, and he, w- he prevailed over Thomas Jefferson in that cabinet to get a U.S. bank. Well, it went, and they had it, and it went till 1911, but it was so controversial that they really couldn't sustain it and it, and it basically went away. But that just shows you that even in the very beginning with George Washington, our first president, there was a national bank established by our federal government. And technically, there would be a lot of things that people could say that said that was unconstitutional to do, but they thought it was. They felt it was. So they got rid of it because it wasn't popular, but the War of 1812 popped up. And that went on for quite a few years, and it was very expensive. You know, the British were pretty good about blowing things up. So uh, we had to, you know, basically pay for that war that put us into debt. And so they created the second U.S. bank and they established that bank. And then one of the things they did is they used that bank to pay off the loans and pay off the debt and they charged the states for it. So they were basically working with the states. So Maryland, when this happened, they were not really thrilled about this. They did not like this thing at all. And they said, well, we can't stop you from doing it, but uh, tell you what, what we're going to do is tax you and we're going to give you a hefty, hefty tax. And that will basically put you out of business in Maryland. And so they did. 
It got fought. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court came back and said, yes, Congress can do this. And no, Marilyn, you do not have the power to tax this bank. So this definitely restricted the states and it definitely promoted federalism or a federal kind of power over the states. Huge decision. And this is 1819, folks. Well, when, and when you use federalism in that, in that way, um, you know, I think a lot of people hear federalism and think, well, federal supremacy, you know, the fed, the federal government is supreme. But um, again, the understanding I, I come from is um, federalism as it was proposed is very much the states have more power in most every area, except for that little area that, uh, you know, they agreed to, to give to, uh, to vest power in uh, the government that they created. And so I can, on the one hand, Gary, I can see the, the wisdom of saying, look, the states can't go taxing the federal government because um, that could be, it could be counterproductive to the federal government doing what it is supposed to do at the same time. Um, the states have to have some means of checking the power of the federal government because it's their creation. The, the creature can never exceed the creator. And, and I don't I don't know if Maryland was trying to get cute with, you know, taxation or if they had something <laughs> else. And maybe they just saw opportunity. But uh, I, I'm undecided as to whether this was a good or a bad outcome. Yeah. So let's take a look at that when we come back from the break. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about that whole thing of the decision that was made and how this impacted. And again, this goes to the thing of these courts, this Supreme Court of ours has a lot of power and a lot of people don't recognize the power that these individuals have. And this decision really established something that that happened for the rest of of our lives. You know, from, from this point forward, this got interpreted a lot of different ways throughout history. No doubt about it. Okay, we will continue our discussion of McCulloch versus Maryland on the court interpreters. And again, we encourage you to uh, to give a shout out, maybe even do some business with our, our sponsor, that being Integra Law. You can go to their website, I-N-T-E-G-R-A law.net, integralaw.net. We'll be back on the court interpreters right after this. and pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Dixie and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for Cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Here's some great 
news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for health insurance, or more importantly, if you sign up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare, and MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have more than 400,000 members now around the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2 billion of each other's medical bills, so they could help share your needs too. And best of all, you could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is around 500 bucks a month. Your savings could be more or less, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Hi, I'm Wade Alaroot. Recently, John and Chelsea Jubilee with Energized Health were guests on my show, sharing their breakthrough science of intercellular hydration. The results? People lose fat fast while still being able to eat many of the foods they love. You can too. Plus, supercharge your energy, boost your immune system, and dramatically increase your brain function. You'll look and feel years younger. It's all simple and natural without painful exercise. How do I know? Because I'm about a third of the way through my 88 days on the program, and I've already lost 25 pounds of fat. I'm now getting hydrated at the cellular level. But don't just take my word for it. Go to EnergizedHealth.com and check out hundreds of amazing testimonials. Right now, for the first time ever, Energized Health is offering a buy one, get one free special. Take advantage of this life-changing opportunity for you and someone you love. Buy one, get one free. Call 888-444-8895. That's 888-444-8895. Or go to EnergizedHealth.com. Two for one. That's EnergizedHealth.com. Once again, welcome back. This is The Court Interpreters, brought to you by Integra Law. I'm Brian Hyde, along with Gary Welch, and we are talking about McCulloch versus Maryland today. It's probably going to ring a few bells for people who kind of paid attention in high school, <laughs> maybe in college. Yeah, I remember here, we studied McCulloch versus Maryland, but I, I bet most people, like me, would struggle to say, so what was it about? And I have to say, Gary, this is this is proving to be a great refresher as well as kind of eye-opening considering that this is a case that has established precedent that, you know, still holds more than 200 years later. Right. They have classified this as a landmark case that basically developed the relationships between our federal government and the states and absolutely put the federal government as a higher power, that, that, that they were the ultimate power, and, and not a, a, like what you were talking about, they weren't the creature of the states, but it just says, no, we are not the creature. Um, we are actually the creator. Yeah, that couldn't possibly get out of hand. <laughs> that could never go astray or go wrong. But uh, anyway, let's, let's talk about the, the particulars of the case and, and how, how it was argued. And, and um, let, let's talk about what, what the Supreme Court actually said. And, and this is a good discussion, you know, just regarding political power and government power, because at this time, federalism, as it was being defined by Alexander Hamilton, and in this case, Justice Marshall over at the Supreme Court, he was absolutely a person that believed in what Alexander Hamilton was doing. He was part of that. All the other justices on the Supreme Court at that time 
we're, we're, we're very much in favor of this. Re- remember McCulloch versus Maryland was a unanimous decision. There was no dissent. They all agreed with this, but it just goes into this, that federalism though, at that time, they still felt like the states were going to have a lot of power, a lot of independence, and that they could do a lot of things within their borders that the federal government was not going to be involved with at all. Their only intention was, look, we're trying to find a way of regulating commerce between states. We're trying to decide what Congress can and cannot do in the course of that. And what they actually did is they took two clauses out of the Constitution and applied it together to make this decision. But here's the thing. At that time, they were just simply saying this is only going to have a minimal impact the states are still going to be very independent, very much being able to what they're, they're doing. But what they did not recognize, I don't know if they did this or not, but there was an unintentional consequence of that is it now sets the stage for just expanding on that. And, and we've talked about it in the past. We're going to talk about it again, about how they took this little thing and said, okay, now the door's open. Let's open it a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more. Now federalism is totally different than what these guys implied. But Marshall in making these decisions set it up because he basically said that Congress did have the power to tell states what to do as far as we can establish this U.S. bank. That is within the Constitution. And he used two reasons for that. He looked at the Constitution. He said there's two things in the Constitution that I interpret that is the operative word I interpret that says that a Congress can regulate commerce between the states. This is part of that. And he finally took what's called the necessary and proper clause, which has really been abused, which states that Congress has the power to make laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, which is said everything we just said, and all other powers vested by this constitution in the government of the United States. So that's what it says, that's the quote. He said because of that, this necessary and proper, that Congress now can forbid Maryland from taxing them, even though Maryland said, hey, we're applying this to any bank that is not basically instituted in Maryland. It's not, it, it, it was not created here in Maryland. So if, if New York puts a bank in us, we'll tax them too the same way. So this is not that. But because of this necessary and proper clause where he says it's going to be necessary to, we have, it's necessary for Congress to make these laws, it says you can't tax them in order to make the commerce law work. That was his reasoning. We are now forbidding you from taxing the bank. Interesting. I'm still I'm still trying to decide whether that was a you know whether the the bank itself was a good move or a bad move. I mean it's it, it's kind of like the old saying of just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Right. And, and but the thing would be is is does the Constitution allow you? And here's a cool part of it because this gets talked about a lot in in today's world, and that is the Tenth Amendment. Because the 10th Amendment says, for those who are unaware, those of you who got the public education, <laughs> the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. 
And that's a very restrictive amendment to it. It was basically saying, hey, unless you've already been told you can do it, you can't, or at least that's one interpretation to it. Now, here's where the big shift comes, because Marshall and these justices says, no, it doesn't say that. What it says is, unless the states and the people expressly prohibit Congress from doing this, Mm. they cannot do it. And where would they expressly prohibit that? In the Constitution? Right. See, there there it is, man. That is wow. that wide open door that goes in there. But saying, because I interpret it this way, that unless they expressly prohibit it from it, everything else within Congress is carte blanche. And that unless the Constitution says you cannot do it, this is the big shift. From up until this point, we could definitely say we're working in a world that says, unless the Constitution tells you you can do it, right. you cannot. They turn it around and said, unless it's expressed in the Constitution that you cannot, you can't. And again, this is back in 1819 that they made this decision. This is not a new thing in our government. Even back then, they had said this, that that our federal government, if it is not exactly prohibited, if there's not something that says you cannot do this, Congress really says they can. Now, the big issue would be the state's. You know, the, if the states express it, and I, I wonder if we should kind of follow that up at some point as far as a, a political strategy. What if we have all the states expressly prohibited Congress from doing something? Uh, I don't know. Would that be interesting? It would. It would, and it's to to me, it's it's fascinating that uh, that they would turn that on its head. I guess it's not surprising, but. Um, it definitely shifts the whole dynamic of, of, of power. And, you know, I, I don't know if anybody had this discussion, you know, in the arguments that they had, but it would be curious to hear someone ask, you know, those, those Supreme Court justices, ask Justice Marshall, if this is true, if basically Congress can do whatever it's not expressly forbidden to, to do, why did we have a written constitution in the first place? What, what's the purpose of having a written constitution that, you know, calls into existence and defines and describes the, the duties and the upper limits of power? Why have that if, you know, there's that loophole where they can pretty much do whatever they want as long as it's not expressly forbidden? Right. And a very good question. And, and we have been struggling with this for over 200 years. And, and as we've seen, and we're going to talk about when we come back into the next segment, of how this decision set up the federal government to start expanding its powers and start expanding what it could and could not do, and how other court cases have come up where they've used this, this decision, to justify that expansion of power. And, you know, once you know how we got here, it helps you decide, like, how can we fix this if, if this is something you don't like? Right. And, and at this point, I'm actually wondering, for as long as it's been in place— it makes me wonder if it's if it's even fixable at all. I don't want to sound pessimistic. I'm just saying, two hundred years that's that's yeah. that's kind of a long time to to be entrenched. If if you get my drift. All right, we got to take a quick break. This is the Court Interpreters. I'm Brian Hyde along with Gary Welch. Our show is brought to you by Integra Law, and we'll be back just the other side of these messages.
Once again, we thank you for joining us on The Court Interpreters on the Fed by Ravens Media Network. I'm Brian Hyde along with Gary Welch. And uh, we are moving into the third segment of our show today. And, and Gary, any final thoughts on McCulloch versus Maryland before we move on to the next landmark case? Only in that, uh, and I, I've expressed this before, is that, you know, it set this up. It is the decision that says, okay, now that we've decided this, this from now sets up other decisions that can have an impact and it builds, it lays down the foundation for it. It was a very instrumental decision. And the thing that I just like pointing out to everyone is that again, a lot of the people that created our government and were and wrote that constitution were alive at this time and there were efforts to try to minimize this, but there were never efforts to overturn this at that time. So you got to take that into consideration that there was officials in government, you know, that that in our federal government at that time that actually did not think this was a bad decision. Interesting. I, have there been a lot of challenges over the year, over the years? Oh, Yes. Absolutely, there was. There have been a lot of challenges. Um, you know, it, it even started uh, shortly thereafter, just before the Civil War, where states definitely were trying to push back. And you know, we saw this. This was because this is the buildup to the Civil War. Is that decision of what can states do and what can the federal government do? You know, this was that big argument up that was basically decided when the Union won the Civil War, and that is. Can our federal government tell states what to do and how to do it? And, and that, that took a war to decide that, but the decision from that, because the victors were saying, yes, we can, that's the result. But it came all the way up until that point, states would try to challenge this one way or another to exert their independence. They were, they were basically saying, no, we, we should be able to do things. And over and over again, they came back to this decision and said, nope, McCulloch versus Maryland says you can't, or we can. Okay. Where do you want to go next? Tell me about the next case. So let's, so let's go up to, to build up to the next case, which is where we start to see a little bit of pushback from the Supreme Court. We Let's kind of go through, do a little bit of history of saying, okay, now what happens? We got McCulloch versus Maryland. What happens out of that? One of the cases that you and I have already done, and if you can go into our podcast, you can look it up if you want to watch it. You know, we, we talk about the uh, Wicked versus Filburn case. This is the farmer who just basically kept his own crops and, and, and they came back and said, no, that, that has an impact on interstate commerce, even though it's indirect. It's not a direct interstate commerce. And so what happened was because of that decision now, and you have the Franklin Roosevelt Supreme Court, this is where it gets into these presidential elections do have consequences because he was there for 12 years. He stacked that court. They were all his people that had his vision of what he wanted, And he had a very different idea about the federal government and how expansive it should be. He wanted to expand it quite a bit. And so these guys use these two clauses now that were established in this case to build out by saying, we're going to give Congress really broad, this is the big thing, the broad interpretation that Marshall had talked about, 
that we got to give them a broad way of, uh, we're going to create that highway really, really wide. We're going to put the guardrails really far apart and give them broad actions to make laws that have any kind of impact on interstate commerce. So if you do something internally within a state, and because of that, an action by an action by an action and an action affects interstate commerce, we now say, okay, that's okay. You can now regulate that because through different little steps that we are gonna take, it affects interstate commerce. We're giving you the power to regulate that. And they just built upon that and built upon, starting passing more laws, more decisions, basically substantiating that. Oh yeah. Okay. I see it. Yeah. And, 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 and the big one that occurred that I think really kind of really defined it was actually a case in 1941. It was called U S versus Darby. And, and what that happened was they really did said they called it this substantial effect test, which is, is that if you do something like I just was talking about, if you do something that's not necessarily directly interfecting affecting interstate commerce but indirectly you you would the congress has the ability to regulate it all right so now we have the consequences of an election for those who would say okay i'm not one on big central government and i like state rights and all that other stuff the consequences of, of an election is george bush and also the reagan era uh, Supreme Court, where you had the Republicans in power for a very extended amount of time. And just the way things worked out, it was always when a, in a vacancy opened in the Supreme Court, a Republican president was in place, and they were able to establish the Supreme Court that was kind of on their side of things. And, we're, and to today, we, we're still seeing kind of that impact. We do have, you know, the majority of the justices right now would be folks that would were appointed by Republican presidents. So in 1990, Congress passed a law called the Gun-Free School Zone Act. And what that act said is that that schools, handguns, were not prohibited, or were not, uh, you could not have handguns near schools. So um, we've, we've got a student in Texas. He's a 12th grade student. He comes into the school with a concealed handgun. Now, the police had been tipped off that he was doing it. And by his own confession, what he was saying is that he was bringing this, this gun into school and he was going to sell it to another individual there. So this was, you know, the high school was their meeting ground. And so here was the funny part. He could have been charged under a bunch of state laws but they wanted to push this gun-free school zone. Um, they really wanted to promote this federal type of approach to gun control. And so they charged them under this law. They dropped the state charges and charged them under this law. And so it goes through the court systems and because it's a federal law, it goes into the federal courts and it all goes all the way up to um, um, I think it's the third district. I'm not sure on that, but it's, you know, the one just below the, the Supreme court and those guys reverse it. They say, no, this does not apply. And they use the interstate commerce part of this to say, you guys are stretching this way too far. 
you got away with it by claiming that this is interstate commerce. You know, it's part of, by having gun-free schools, it creates an environment that allows for interstate commerce. You know, you're really (laughs) stretching that as too far. And they basically said, okay, the elastic clause that, you know, um, um, that, that welfare type of part, good, good and proper cause that they call the elastic. They said, you just stretched it too far. This rubber band is broke. And they, and they, they dismissed the charges and it went before the Supreme court and the Supreme court said, yes, they're right. This is going too far. So they gave that little bit of pushback. It was the first pushback against this that had occurred since the, the Roosevelt Supreme court had been put in place. Really? Wow. That's a long time between cases. I mean, between cases that push back on that particular principle. Right. And so what we saw was the Supreme Court basically moving this agenda forward and expanding it more and more. And now we've seen somebody pushing back and saying, nope, nope, we're not going to let you. So my question is, how, how did the federal government respond Obviously, the Supreme Court said, okay, this is too far. Um, I, I'm curious what the reaction was, though. For instance, uh, Congress, I'm sure when they passed the Gun-Free School Zones Act of, of 1990, probably had some some good reasons for doing so. But did they give up? <laughs> did they did they go to their corner and think about what, did they sit in the corner and think about what they'd done or go to their room? What, uh, oh, what, yeah. what followed? Oh, yeah, they thought about it. They thought about it really hard. And what they did was create a loophole. So oh. they changed the law. <laughs> they made a slight change in the law so that it had nothing to do with interstate commerce and, and put it in so that uh, uh, became more of a, of a state regulation type of deal. Okay. Is, is that a good thing? I mean, it sounds like they kind of kicked it back to the states. Well, and, and we can talk about this when we come back, and that is, um, what was this about? Was this about interstate commerce or was this about gun control? Yeah, well, I think it was gun control via, you know, the interstate commerce loophole. See what I did there? <laughs> they always talk yep. about the gun show loophole. Well, here's here's the interstate commerce loophole that uh, that allows the federal government to magically get uh, the authority it needs or Congress to get the authority it needs. Let's take a quick break. We'll continue our final segment of the court interpreters coming up just the other side of these messages. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for health insurance, or more importantly, if you sign up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare, and MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have more than 400,000 members now around the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2 billion of each other's medical bills, so they could help share your needs too. And best of all, You could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is around 500 bucks a month. Your savings could be more or less, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. 
833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Pounds and pounds of fur. Our hairballs have hairballs. Our cat mama, she's 10 years old. She has dandruff and an oily coat. I have two cats, Zippy and Daisy. Daisy sheds like crazy. If you love your pets as much as I do, you'll want to do what's best for them, to live long, healthy, happy lives. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. I just tried this wonderful, catalicious Dynavite for cats, and my cat has been on it for two weeks. She is not scratching anymore. She's not chewing anymore. It is just the best. I was thrilled when I heard Dynavite for cats was coming out because I had seen the changes in my dog. To introduce my cat to Dynavite, I took the advice from Dynavite and put their food on top of just a scoop in the bowl just to get them used to it because I know if I even switch one little thing, they put their nose up to it. There was not one problem. Dynavite for life. You won't believe how happy your cat will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. It's totally normal to be constipated with belly pain, straining, and bloating again and again. No way. You could have a chronic condition called irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, or IBSC. Linzess, or linaclotide, is a prescription that treats IBSC in adults. Linzess works differently than laxatives to help relieve belly pain and let you have more frequent and complete bowel movements. Individual results may vary. Do not give to children less than six, and it should not be given to children six to less than eighteen. It may harm them. Do not take Linzess if you have a blockage. Get immediate help if you develop unusual or severe stomach pain, especially with bloody or black stools. The most common side effect is diarrhea, sometimes severe. If it's severe, stop taking Lens S and call your doctor right away. Other side effects include gas, stomach area pain, and swelling. Talk to your doctor today. You may be able to save on Lens S and make fewer trips to the pharmacy. See if you're eligible to pay as little as $30 for 90 days. Visit LensS.com or call 1-800-L-I-N-Z-E-S-S. Sponsored by Abby and Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Hey, welcome back to The Court Interpreters. I'm Brian Hyde along with Gary Welch. And we're talking about United States v. Lopez. Gary, the the question is, was this this court case about interstate commerce or was it about gun control? So this is, that is a really good question because when you look at it and when you read it, this was about gun control. You had a court that was very pro second amendment. They, they, the, the majority of the, of the justices at this time being appointed by Republicans had a very strong second amendment lean to them. And then you had a Congress that was trying to be very anti-gun and they were trying to pass laws that were controlling the gun gun market. And the thing of it is, is that they were trying to word it, you know, it's just like what lawyers do is you take these laws, you take the constitution and you try to find ways of using that to get what you want. So Congress cannot pass gun laws per se on the merit of just gun laws. The second amendment prohibits that. That's a direct prohibition of them doing that. But what you're seeing in these gun control laws, it's all based upon the loophole that Congress found was, well, we're using this interstate commerce clause to to control the guns. It's not about guns. It's about interstate commerce because guns have this impact. 
you know, if, if there's high crime, if there's a lot of uh, crime going on with the use of guns and murders and things like that, that represses the overall economic ability of the country. And so because of that, that impacts interstate commerce and we can do this. This is like what lawyers do. You just have to understand that that's, that, that is what the attorneys do. They take these things and they try to use these laws to get what they want. So that's what this is all about. All of the gun laws that you saw being passed by Congress were being passed under this clause. So when it gets to the Supreme Court on this case, this particular case, they saw an opportunity to push back. And so basically what they are trying to do then is reverse McCulloch versus Maryland. They're, they're actually saying, no, you know what? Our predecessors took too broad of an interpretation of the interstate clause, and we want to bring it back a little bit. And we're using this decision to do so. Interesting. Now, we've seen some states in, in years since this um, attempt to, to pass laws that, uh, that would, um, I'm trying to think of the right word here. I'm sure there's a legal term for excuse themselves or otherwise uh, disqualify themselves from, from being held to certain uh, firearms uh, regulations under interstate commerce. And uh, I'm sure you've heard of this, Gary, the intrastate you know, firearms laws, basically saying, look, here in Montana, if a gun is manufactured here and purchased here and owned by somebody here, it never entered into interstate commerce. Therefore, it's none of the federal government's uh, business about that firearm. Have you heard anything about this? Again, it's going back to, though, here's where McCulloch comes into play of it, that in that all Congress has to do is establish that through this, indirectly it, it impacts interstate commerce so that they can say, well, because you made that law, you have a higher crime rate because you have a higher crime rate that it restricts the ability for commerce to move through your state. You know, the trucking industry going through your state as they're traveling the highways, they get robbed all the time. So they're afraid to use your highways. And I mean, that sounds like really weird and out there, but that's exactly what they've been doing. They've been using this broad interpretation to say, as long as we connect the dots, it doesn't matter how many dots are in between. We just got to connect the dots between what you did and it impacting somebody in another state of their ability to buy and sell something. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, of course, to me, it seems like a stretch, but that's, uh, it just seems like the, they can make it up as they go. And and maybe that's a good thing. I, I mean, if somebody can explain to me how that's a good thing, I'm willing to listen. But my gut tells me, Ah, that sets the stage for, for mischief on an endless basis. And it did, and it has. They, they have absolutely been using that. So this is kind of cool. I look at this as another landmark case, although most people would not. But I do because the justices pulled back. They actually pushed back on this and said, no, you can't. And, and I'll just give you an example. I'm going to talk about what uh, uh, Justice Rehnquist, when he delivered the decision, the things that he talked about. And he said that the interstate clause really has three broad categories that Congress could regulate. So he's trying to bring this back. And what he said was the use of channels of interstate commerce. This is your highways, your transportation systems, and things like that. The instrumentalities of interstate commerce, of persons or things in interstate commerce, even though the threat may come from intrastate activities. 
So these, so if you've got products and things or people and things that directly impact that interstate transportation of products and services, you can do that. And then activities that substantially, and that was the big word, substantially affect or substantially relate to interstate commerce. So basically what he was saying is, guys, you got to take these dots and it's got to be one dot and the next dot to make the connection. You cannot have these 15 dots in the middle where this causes that and that causes this and then this finally impacts the interstate commerce. It's got to be a more direct and substantial impact. And if it's this very little teeny tiny impact, basically you can do it. So to your Montana law, mm-hmm. now because of Judge Rehnquist's decision, I think they get away with it. It's going to be interesting because, uh, I, and I think this is, I'm, I'm glad you're talking about this case. I think this is one that we're going to see tested, or at least we're going to see variations of this in the days ahead. It's no secret. The the new uh, Biden presidential administration has said gun control is going to be a top priority. You've already had states and some counties and other localities saying we are a Second Amendment sanctuary. And so I would expect there to be some challenges and pushback on anything coming from the federal government regarding steeper or, you know, more pronounced gun control. So I, I don't know. We may be talking about uh, a more recent uh, gun control case, even though the Supreme Court has kind of steered clear of those for the most part. Well, and, and because of this now, here's the other thing, too. They back their decision up. There have been two more decisions that have came after this. Um, the last one was in 2005, and they backed it up. They said, no, this is what we said, and they got challenged, and they backed it up, and they said, no, we want we want this to be very limited of how you can use it. And this is just a very good point because we now have we, – we have a Democrat Congress and Senate. We have a Democrat president. Their agenda, they have made it very clear, is about controlling the, 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 the gun market. And I'm not stating this from a good or bad point of view. I'm just saying we know this is the case. Now, the way that Congress has always been able to do this is under this interstate clause. All the gun laws that you have seen from Congress, every single one of them has been based on the interstate commerce clause, not about actual gun control. Because that's that would be another decision. If they So that's really their two decisions is one – do we fight this, the, the Second Amendment? Do we challenge the Second Amendment directly and say that it does not apply, which this current court, we know what they're going to decide on that? Or do we true, try to make laws through the interstate commerce, which we have always done in the past? We now have a court that's saying, nah, we're not going to let you get away with that either. So they may pass laws, but here's the thing. It may get all shot down in the court system. Because now we would have the federal courts looking to these decisions and saying, well, the Supreme Court's already ruled on this. It may not even get to them. They may shoot it down right in the federal court system. I'm pretty careful not to put too much faith in the federal courts, even though I have to say that, uh, you know, if if there is a legacy that uh, Donald Trump is going to be uh, remembered for and felt of, uh, you know, he's, they're going to feel his legacy long after he's gone. It's it's the number of judicial appointments that, that he made. And I'm, I guess the odds are some of them have to be pretty good, you know, strict constructionists <laughs> who, who mm-hmm. won't uh, use the Constitution as, as a plaything. But um, it'll be interesting to see if if there is, you know, a, a more rigid um, adherence to the limits 
of the Constitution by those uh, members of the judiciary that we that we have currently. And no judge, regardless of their political leanings, wants to be overturned. And so if they know, you know, the way that that court decision is, if this goes to the Supreme Court, we know how they're going to rule. They're not going to push it. Why would they? That, that just makes them look bad. So, you know, there are going to be judges who will because they do have that agenda. But this has an impact on our court systems. Okay. Gary, it's it's fascinating, as always, to talk about this with you. Of course, we have archives for our show, which can be found at fedbyravensmedia.com. And uh, we want to give a shout-out to our, our sponsor, that's Integra Law, the law firm that actually has integrity right there in its name, um, I-N-T-E-G-R-A law.net. Um, Gary, uh, Gary Welch, thank you so much for our uh, every other week meeting to discuss these court cases. I look forward to the next time we get together to talk. All right. Goodbye, everyone.